Um, sometimes when I stand up to preach, like something just comes into my mind like last minute. And I'm trying to remember, have I ever told you the story of when I got in trouble at Sunday school when I was a kid at church? So we had this new Sunday school teacher and they were trying to teach us, I don't even know what the lesson was, but it was me and maybe five, six other kids. And our Sunday school room was actually in the church sanctuary. And so we had a little table on the side and then like all the pews and everything. And all I did for that hour of Sunday school was not listen to the teacher. I was, I was probably, I don't remember what exactly I did. Apparently I was being disrespectful. Apparently I was distracting other students with stupid jokes and whatever. And to highlight the, the entire experience, what I did was I walked away from the table and I, I did an army crawl underneath all of the pews in the entire sanctuary and to the point where I was kind of dusty afterwards. And I'll never forget a conversation that I had with my parents at home. They sat me down and they basically said, what I did almost caused that Sunday school teacher to quit. And there were some consequences for little Pastor Matt. And maybe you've had experiences like that in your life too, where an authority figure in your life, for whatever reason, you just kind of bumped up against them. You didn't want to listen and you weren't quite sure what to do with that. We'll be talking about that a little bit more today in part four of our series called Christmas Perspectives. And today, what we're looking at is Christmas from the perspective of the Magi. And right away, the question that I have, or maybe the question you have, is who were they? Because they play an, an important part in the account of Christmas, which we're about to see. And so before we even open up the Bible and, and look at what Matthew wrote about the Magi, it's, it's worth talking about, like, who were they? And maybe the first way to answer that is to look at their aliases. Um, the Magi were also known as the wise men. They're also known as we three kings of Orient are, according to the song, and there's a lot of ideas about, out there about who these wise men or these magi or these three kings were. And by the way, even as you look at different translations of the Bible, you'll see some translations call them magi, others call them wise men, others call them kings. There's like a lot of disagreement about who they were. And as I did some research this week, I found something very disheartening. I would have had to do hours and hours of research for myself to give you firsthand details about who they were. Um, for example, there was one sermon, I happened to find it online. Uh, there was a really old pastor. This, is, this was a, a sermon from a few years ago. And as I was listening to his message on the Magi, or the wise men, he spent, get this, the first 24 minutes of his message was just giving a historical backdrop of, about who the Magi might have been or where they might have come from. And I'm like, wow. I'm not ready to preach on this thing, but here's the good news, um, especially if you don't like history. I'm not going to give you 24 minutes on who they might have been because the account of Christmas from the perspective of, of the Magi doesn't require you to know who they were. In fact, who they were is mostly inconsequential. We'll, we'll bring up a, a few details, but really what the, the, the account of Christmas from their perspective is all about is, is the matter of authority. And I'll put it this way. When a new authority presents itself, it demands some sort of reaction. In many cases, it demands a decision from you. Will I follow them? 
or will I make my own way? Will I obey them or will I ignore them? Anytime a new authority presents itself, it demands some sort of response. And maybe just a quick illustration of this, my three kids are now gloriously old enough that we can leave all three of them at home with no parents. But there's one thing we tell them before we leave. Remember, Jackie's in charge now. And by the way, if you're not there yet, just a quick tip. When you say that a certain child's in charge, you have to explain what that means and what that doesn't mean. So they're in charge, which means they're going to tell you this and this and this. And by the way, you're not going to tell them this and this and this. Like you can't make them clean your room. Like that's not what a parent does. So you have to be clear what the authority is all about. But I can only imagine the second I step out the door, it demands a response from them. Will the boys listen? Will they make life easy for her? There's going to be some sort of response, and I'm going to hear about it in three hours when I come back home. But when a new authority presents itself, it demands some sort of decision or some sort of response. And what we see happen at Christmas isn't just this good news of great joy that there is now hope for all people, but the main message of Christmas is that a king has been born. In fact, the main message of the wise men is a king has been born, king of the Jews. And as this new authority is presented, we see some different responses, some different reactions. And I'm wondering for me and for you, we need to go through the same thing. What Christmas means is that a new king has come to this world and it's It's only worth our time. It's only fair that we should ask the question, what is my response to his kingship? Will I follow or will I question? And what kind of authority is this that is presented to me? So as we work through this account of the magi or the wise men or we three kings of Orient are, we're going to see the different reactions people had as this new king presents himself to this world. And we'll begin with a backdrop of who the Magi were according to Matthew chapter two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, and that clarified, there's actually many Bethlehems out out in that area. Just like today, I think there's a Springfield in every state. Um, Back then, Bethlehem was a very common name. And so they had to identify, well, which one are we talking about? So Matthew narrows it down. He says, this was Bethlehem in Judea where Jesus was born. And it was during the the time of King Herod, which we'll talk about him in just a moment. During that time, Magi from the East came to Jerusalem. And this is all we know about them. And we often picture it maybe in the nativity scenes. How many Magi were there? We don't know. We just know there was more than one. And near as we can tell, they probably went on a, on a trip that was well over a month. So my best guess is that there were more than three because in order to have enough money or enough goods to trade, you're going to need quite the treasure chest full of things that you can sell and trade so you can have food and lodging for this month's long trip to and from Jerusalem. The other question is, well, where did they come from? And the short answer is, 
the east. We're not sure exactly. We know it's a different country, so it's not like the eastern side of Israel. It's out east of Israel. And there's some, again, here's where you could have a 24-minute introduction to the sermon, but some have conjectured that, well, maybe the wise men were from Babylon. And an interesting note is if the Magi or the wise men were from Babylon, you know who else was a wise man in Babylon? Actually, a person in the Bible, Daniel. The same Daniel in the lion's den. He was in Babylon, and he actually became chief of all the wise men of Babylon. So what if Daniel, while he was there, this was hundreds of years before Jesus, what if he had shared with his wise men in Babylon a bigger picture of what God had planned for this world, that one day a savior would be born, he would be king of the Jews, and here's how you will recognize him. What if Daniel taught them? And then generation after generation, they passed along this information. Again, this is where the 24 minutes would come in. All conjecture, but what we know is they're from the east. And somehow, some way, they knew that God would send a savior to the world and he would be a king from the Jewish people. So Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they start asking questions. They're, they're walking around the street. And just picture out-of-place tourists that are dressed totally different. And I'm sure they're standing out like a sore thorn, but, but they're walking through Jerusalem, and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. We know he's here. So they're not asking, has a king been born? They know he's been born. They know when it happened, but they don't know where. And so they're walking around Jerusalem. Hey, where is the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star rise, and so we've come to worship. And by the way, the, name, the, the word worship means to physically lower yourself, to bow down in reverence and adoration. We saw his star rise, and so we are here to fall. We are here to bow down and worship him. And so word on the street gets out. Some foreigners are here talking about some king of the Jews that has been born. And word gets out across the town. And while there's plenty of things we could learn from this, I, the one thing I don't want to miss is the simple face value thing that Matthew wanted everyone to recognize as he wrote down this account of what happened. See, from Matthew's perspective, his audience, in fact, he himself was a Jew. And so what, one of the goals he had as he wrote this account of Jesus is he wanted people to see how Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that had been promised that the Savior would do, that this king would do. And so from Matthew's perspective, he's like, just, just what we all need to know is, is this. Number one, magi from another country recognized Jesus as a long-awaited king. And this is like the summary, like if you're going to just put a tagline for, and make, make it a summary of the entire account, that's what the Magi did. They, they were from a different country and they recognized that Jesus was king. Now, what's the irony in this? <laughs> the people of Jerusalem did not recognize him. His own brothers didn't recognize him. In time, they would. But it would require much more than a sign of a star. They would have to see the sign of the prophet Jonah, where Jesus would die and then three days later come back to life. But the Magi were among the first to recognize that this child that was just born was born to be 
a king. And they had been waiting centuries for this sign to appear. Now, we don't know much about this star and what it looked like. What we do know is that these wise men, just a little bit more background, they were, they were wise. They were smart, which means that they were up to speed on all of the sciences and the astronomy, and they were up to date on even medical, uh, latest medical technologies. Um, it seems that they might have also been key players politically within their country. There's evidence that maybe they were a checks and balances to the king himself. And perhaps they served as kind of the combination of Senate and judicial branch in the sense that no one can become a king unless the Magi recognize them. And when it comes to this star, they were wise people. They had charted out the stars. In fact, you can look this up and see some of the incredible detail where they were able to predict when things would happen with the stars and the planets and things. But they recognized that one day there was a certain star that hadn't been there before. And so whether they went back into their records and searched what could this mean, or maybe Daniel had scribbled something, we, we don't know. But it was clear to them that this star indicated that the king of the Jews had been born. And it wasn't so crazy, like this amazing supernova that lit up the entire... It wasn't something where everyone recognized it. You had to have well-trained eyes to notice this one thing that was new or this one thing that was different. But they knew when it happened. So they went to Jerusalem and they started asking, where is he? the one that's been born king of the Jews, assuming everyone else knew what they knew. But people were muttering, what? Don't let Herod hear you talk like that. But he did. These out-of-place foreigners walking through the streets of Jerusalem were asking everyone, where is he, where is he, where is he? And soon word got to King Herod. And here's what happened. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And I actually looked up that word for disturbed. That this was originally written in Greek. And the word can also be used of rioting. Like when the civilian population just gets unrest, sometimes they riot and just destroy the city. Except this wasn't civilians rioting. This was the king rioting. He was disturbed. And then it says, all Jerusalem with him. And get, here's where we could spend another 24 minutes just talking about Herod the Great and what a not great guy he was. One of the things he did was when he felt intimidated by someone, they would go missing. When someone posed a threat to his throne, they, they would not be seen again. And guess who went missing? Some of his own sons. That's what kind of a, a king he was. And so when he hears a king of the Jews has been born and this message is going throughout all Jerusalem, oh, he is beside himself with anger. And so when he hears this, all Jerusalem, when they know King Herod's upset, they're, oh, this isn't good. And so they're all battening up the hatches. They're all watching out what might happen because now Herod is upset. So when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, hey, where, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So kind of this side meeting, this hush-hush meeting, he calls in all the experts. He says, according to your Jewish scriptures, according to all your prophecies, where is this supposed to happen? 
Like, is it right here in Jerusalem or, or where is it supposed to be? And so the scribes, the teachers of the law, they, they, you know, maybe they consult each other or maybe the answer is so simple they can just rattle it off to him. But here's what they say. They said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. This is a reference to Micah chapter five. But you, Bethlehem, the one in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And so they tell Herod, the one born king of the Jews, the one that Jerusalem is talking about right now, the scriptures say we should look in Bethlehem, the one in Judea, that little tiny town that doesn't mean anything. And here's the ironic part. These are the experts. And as word got out that the king of the Jews had been born, what was maybe arguably the first thing they should have done? Wait a minute. If he's been born, we should go see for ourselves if this is true. And they should have sent a delegation to Bethlehem in Judea to see what this was all about. But do you know what they were content to do? Just keep studying. Because they thought that their relationship with God was determined by what they knew about him. Here's the ironic part. Those who knew the most seemed to care the least. They, They were so apathetic towards this idea that the king had been born that They had to be prompted by Herod to to, to ask the question, where? And I see that so much in myself too, where I am so content to sit at my desk or to listen to a podcast or whatever and and hear like all these great ideas of what the Bible means and to grow in it. And that's not a bad thing. But what becomes a bad thing is when we're content just to learn and not to live. Live to learn about God and his love, but not to live it or put it into practice. And that's what I see from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, when news went out that the king had been born. They didn't care. So number two, recognizing Jesus' kingship is not the same as living under his kingship. Learning about Jesus is not the same as living with him. And one thing that you have to battle is that the longer you know about Jesus, the easier it is to make this into an academic or intellectual thing where you can grow in what you know about the Bible so you can disprove others when they're wrong about it. And that is not the way of life that Jesus invites his followers to do. Rather, what he invites is a lot simpler, but a lot harder. Love one another as I have loved you. Don't just recognize his kingship but live under his kingship. And that's what we're about to see the Magi do. They were among the first to place themselves under his kingship. And we're going to see exactly what that looks like for us today. But first, there's one more thing we need to look at. Herod himself. So Herod called the Magi secretly. And now that he knew where the savior or the king was supposed to be born. He needs to figure out when. 
So he called them secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem with his blessing and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. I put air quotes in there. I'm sure he didn't do that because it'd be so totally suspicious. But we know that his intention was not to go and worship this newborn king, but to do what he had done to so many other people that had gotten in his way. His sons, his advisors, his rivalries, they were all executed, all put to death. And Herod had the exact same plan with this. In fact, one of the most sad accounts that we see in all of the Bible is coming up in the next section where Herod takes out his anger when he doesn't find this king of the Jews. He decides to slaughter all of the little kids in Bethlehem as a result to send the message that there's one king and his name is Herod. And that's the other thing we learned from this account of the Magi is what we see in Herod that he had room for one king and he was it. And what we take away from that is we can often have that same mindset, can't we? Maybe not to exterminate kids in a village, but isn't it true that we have that selfishness that wants to make it all about me? And and one thing, if, if you're meeting with your group this week, you can talk about how you naturally tend to respond to authority. Like, do you just go along with what you're told to do or do you tend to question it? more. Well, to some degree, we all at one time or another question God's authority too. We ask questions like, why are you allowing this to happen? And quite often it happens for me. I don't know if it happens for you, but you might be in a place where you think to yourself, I'm just going to take this into my own hands. I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm not going to follow his will. I I know what I want. I'm just going to do it. And so I sit down on the king's chair. And there's only room for one. But what I've learned, and eventually what you'll learn too, if you haven't already, is that you are not the king you need. In fact, if you just wrote down what you tell yourself, on a regular basis, is that what a loving, kind king would say to you? Or what I've heard from several other people is, you know, sometimes you get into this self-talk, like someone might give you a compliment, like, hey, good job on that, or hey, way to go. But in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, but there's 50 things I didn't do right about it. That could have been better. And you're telling yourself, you did a bad job while everyone else is saying good job. And just be honest, you're not the king you need. You can't lead yourself the way that you need to be led. And so there there comes a point in all of us where maybe we're not like the outwardly evil Herod, but inwardly, the same is true. There's only room for one king, and too often, I'm it. You're it. But you are not the king you need. I am not the king I need. I need someone who is greater. And what we see remarkable is what the, the Magi do next. They, they've come from their nation and they're actually here to recognize this king of the Jews, even though they're not part of the, that kingdom. And as they come, they do something incredible. So after they leave Herod, as after they had heard from the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose from wherever they were out east, 
It went ahead of them somehow, some way, until it stopped over the place where the child was. This familiar star was recognizable enough that they could spot it. And here, by the way, here's the cool part. Sometimes when you're on your journey of following Jesus, it's so easy to, okay, here's what we're doing, and you run with it. But what did they not stop doing? When night rolled around, they kept looking up. They kept searching the sky, looking for God's guidance. And when they saw the star, they were, and the Greek uses four words where the English uses one. They were overjoyed. Literally, they were overjoyed with a great massive joy. It's like really weird to translate, but the English just says they were overjoyed. They were beside themselves with excitement when they saw this star and they knew not just the when, but now they knew the where. And so they went to Bethlehem. And when they came to the house, and here's where we have to step back and you know, clarify one other thing. Jesus could have been up to two years old at this point. It wasn't immediately after he was born that these wise men show up. It's a matter of months, at least, when they, when they arrived. To the point where when they get to Bethlehem, Jesus isn't sitting in a manger anymore, but they're in a house. Maybe Mary and Joseph, after they had, you know, she's not going to travel too far after having a baby. Maybe after a month, they're like, you know what? Our relatives are here. This is a nice place. Let's just live in Bethlehem for a while. We, we don't know exactly, but when the wise men came, there they were in the house, Mary and Joseph, or Mary and Jesus, maybe Joseph was out working, we're not sure. But on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Just a quick question. What did Jesus do that was so impressive that they had to bow down and worship? Just think about that. What did he do? Then, after they bowed down and worshiped, they opened their treasures, which were a necessary part of traveling for months away from home to, to purchase lodging. Again, from a different country, they didn't have the, the money of Rome. They had their own currency, and so they had to bring valuable things that they could trade. So they opened up their chests and said, what do we have? And so they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And some have speculated the significance of those three gifts, but we're not told they have any significance. And so the only thing we know for, for sure is that they were worth a lot of money. And what happens next, Mary and Joseph have to take Jesus and they have to flee off to Egypt. And so maybe, maybe this is funding their escape. We, we, don't, we don't know. But they are honoring him as a king. They are worshiping him. And again, the question comes up, what did he do? What did this little baby or this little toddler do? Or I'll put it this way, when, when they worshiped him, what, what, why consider him worthy of worship before he had done anything worthy of worship? I don't think that little toddler Jesus was walking around on water for them, like showing off. That wouldn't come until later when his disciples would be in trouble. And again, this little baby Jesus wasn't doing miracles yet because he hadn't formally started his, his ministry to, to show people who he was. The incredible thing is before he had done anything worthy of worship, they decided he was worthy of worship. And this might be applicable for, for you and for me too, because there's going to be some times in your life where you're waiting on God for something. And you know it's his timing and it's going to be to his glory, but he hasn't done it yet. 
And maybe you're thinking, when this happens, then he'll be worthy of my thanks. So then he'll be worthy of my worship. But what if he's already worthy? Now, the sinful part of me likes to make this a, a, a scale where God has to do certain things, and the more he does those certain things, the more worthy he is of my praise, the, the more he gives me, the more I'll raise up my hands and thank him. That gets us into a lot of trouble if we have that kind of relationship with God, that vending machine type of relationship where I'm happy if he gives me what I want. I need a king that's better than me, that's wiser than me, that's more gracious than me. And so here's the incredible thing. The Magi found him worthy of worship before he had done anything worthy of worship because they knew who he was. This was not just the king of the Jews, but this was the one that had been promised from ages ago to rescue the world from what it needed rescuing from the most. That this king of the Jews was so much more than just a gift to one nationality, but this was what God gave to the world his one and only son. And the thing that prompted it was not that we were worthy of his love, but that he considered us worthy before we were. God acted as though we were worthy of his love even when we were not worthy of his love. And that makes him worthy of our worship even if by our standards he hasn't done what we want yet to make him worthy. And so the, the wise men have these earthly treasures in their hands, laying them before the king. And walking away, they have a heavenly treasure in their heart. And that's what we walk away with too. That the Magi, we don't need to know exactly who they were. We don't need to know exactly where they came from because for us, their perspective of Christmas is all about what we might do with this new authority that's now presenting itself before our eyes, this new king of Israel. And also what we take away from, from, from Christmas is the same thing that they get to take away. This new, renewed sense that we don't need to look at the stars to find a message from God because what he sent in that manger tells us all we need to know that he so loved us, he lived among us, even before, without us, being worthy of his love. And that's what changes us forever. And so, what made him worthy of worship? What makes Jesus worthy of your worship? There are three things. And these three things all come together to, to make worship what it is. And, and as I say worship, as we think about the wise men and ourselves, don't just think singing hymns or singing songs in church, but think a life where you are lowering yourself under his kingship, knowing that he's the kind of king you need. Here's the first thing that makes him worthy of worship, his nature. Just as you consider that he was God from all eternity, but when Jesus was born, when he, when he was conceived, he became something he had never been before, a person, 
a human being with flesh and blood just like you and me. God became flesh and dwelled among us. And just by nature of who he is, he deserves our worship. And so that's why the wise men placed their treasures before him because of who he was. And sometimes, by the way, you see uh, examples of these three things in, in everyday life. Um, if we had maybe you know, someone standing up here who was maybe not a celebrity, but the son of a celebrity, I, I'm, I'm not going to say any names, but just picture like, oh, wow, they're here. Just because of who they are, like they deserve our attention. They deserve our, our awe, our, our amazement. That is so much more true of Jesus, the king, because of who he is. The second thing is, is uh, his title. Um, he did not come as judge to declare us guilty, but he came as savior. And when it comes to someone with a title, um, they don't have to be a good person for you to need to respect them. Uh, if they have the badge, if they have the title, if they're in the office, there's certain people that you just need to show respect to because of the title that they have. How much more to someone who has the title Savior, especially knowing what that job would require of them. And so what makes Jesus worthy of our, our, our worship? It's his nature, who he is, but it's also his title, his position, what he has set out to do. And then finally for us, something the Magi didn't get to appreciate fully yet is his work, what he has done to take our sins from us onto himself to suffer on a cross as he faced the separation from his father in heaven and then took our sins to the grave. Then in Revelation, you see this, this song come up from heaven. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive our worship, our thanks. And so because of his nature, we stand in awe. Because of his title, we give him respect and honor. Because of his work, we give him our thanks. And when you combine those three things together, that's what worship looks like. Our awe, our honor, and our thankfulness. And so worship is the combined expression of awe and honor and thankfulness. And it's the same thing that the Magi offered when they saw Jesus face to face. And so quite simply, number four, Jesus is worthy of all worship, all of it, because of his nature, because of his title, because of what he has done. And so as you, as you take this perspective of Christmas, you might not know everything about the Magi, who they were and where they came from, or even how many of them there were. But we do know what it looks like to be presented with the authority of the King of Kings. Our proper response because of who he is, what he does, and what he has done is to simply bow down in worship living under his kingship because he is the kind of king we need. We're going to wrap it up there for our Christmas Perspective series, and we're going to pick it up next time in a brand new series that's all about forgiveness, how to do it, and what happens to you when you do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the account of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, where we see these people from a foreign country recognize Jesus as the King. Sometimes we have trouble seeing your goodness in our lives, and sometimes we even question 
what you're doing and why you're doing it. I thank you so much that you have shown me and shown all of us grace when we were not worthy of it. And I pray that as we follow you more and more, we would only see more reasons why you are the king we need and we are not. So help us to crucify ourselves, to put ourselves to death along with Jesus as he died on the cross so that each day we can see this new person rise up from the ashes that is forgiven and loved and loves to live under you. So bless us this week, bless us this new year as we consider what it looks like to live out our lives with Jesus as our good King and our good shepherd. It's in his name we pray, amen.